and this might make me a bad Christian, which I don't care, but like, actually there's really no evidence to anything after this. It really is just faith. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Thanks so much for listening. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Scott Erickson. Scott is a touring painter, performance speaker, and creative priest who mixes autobiography, mythology, and aesthetics to create art and moments that speak to our deepest experiences. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here again. I'm excited that we uh, we got to connect again and uh, and touch on some of this new content you got. Definitely some uh, new subjects to to discuss. But if anybody's unfamiliar with you or your previous episode on the show, can you just give us a little bit of an introduction about how you got introduced to church and to faith and spiritual stuff? Yeah. Well, I grew up in it, and my family on both sides are all. Uh, Protestant Christians. Uh, my dad's side, a long line of like pastors and missionaries and so professional like ministers. And uh, so I just kind of grew up around it and have had times where I was like, do I still believe this stuff and have gone through changes and transitions with that. But um, I I still find the presence and, and person of Jesus uh, very... Um, real and uh, inviting. Uh, the the forms and structures of how I practice my faith have maybe uh, evolved as, as they should. Um, but uh, yeah, I still can't get away from Jesus. And, <laughs> and that, and then I, I do work that I guess involves um, spirituality and spiritual formation and um, seeking after that holy mystery we call God. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So today on the show, we've got an eclectic array of topics that we could we could start with. But let's start with Say Yes, uh, which is the show we're going to be discussing. Uh, where did the idea of Say Yes first originate for you? Hmm. Well, I was going through something is where it started. I which which so Say Yes is this multimedia show. Um, that it's like a storytelling slash art show slash spiritual practices, mental health practices slash sing-along, lots of things. And, um, but in its earliest stages, it just started as like the first time I ever talked about the content was just like 12 pages of notes (laughs) to an audience and going, does this land with you? Um, And then it evolved into kind of a multi-sensory performance. It, it happened to me like I'm in my 40s now, I'm 43, but at 39, I had this moment where, and I, this is right at the beginning of the show, but I put my kids to sleep one night and I walked out in the living room and I noticed I was, I was crying and not because we had a magical bedtime story or anything like that. I just, I was crying and I tried to stop and I couldn't. And uh, I made my way to our only bathroom in the house and I just sat on the toilet and I cried for an hour and, um, it was this thing that was breaking in me. I would say, I didn't know what was happening, but with some time after that, I, uh, I realized what was happening is that I, 
a dream was dying that I, I that I actually started to understand who I wanted to be in the world. And I was disappointed with where I was at. Um, I wish I knew at 18 who I wanted to be in the world. And I was grieving the loss of like 20 years of just feeling like I've been falling down some stairs <laughs> into my present day. Um, and, uh, but then I noticed that I was like, well, why can't I, and what I, and, and this is kind of the, the big reveal at the end is like, I realized I was much more of like a performing artist than a studio artist. And so I was like, well, why can't, I should, I should try to do that stuff. I should, I should start developing like performing arts. And immediately I was just confronted with this inner voice that was like, nobody gives a shit about a 40 year old man trying to become a performing artist. And I was like, that's a really valid argument. Um, Cause and I don't say this anymore. I said it once or twice and some people got really sad. But I was like, look, you know, when you go to like a farmer's market and there's like somebody in their 50s playing guitar, doing music at a farmer's market and it's not good. Do you feel, are you like, yeah, man, you're pursuing your dreams. Or you're like, ah, oh, that feels a little pathetic. Uh, you know, and I was kind of that, there's so many like cultural things that are like, if you didn't figure it out when you were young, it's over. And I was like, no. And so I started paying attention to these other arguments that I had. And I was like, I, in order to move forward, I have to develop kind of like a pivot or a counter argument to these inner arguments. And I read and talked to people and, and learned and developed these kind of like my own kind of mental health, spiritual health practices to dealing with this voice of giving up. And I was just taking notes for a couple of years on this. I was, you know, like kind of when you're, when you're a professional creator, you understand you just got to be collecting all the time. So I use Evernote and I just had this folder that I was like, just collecting all of these things. And then, um, I mean, it's the weird, um, we're, we start talking, we start talking about creativity. We're going to get mystical. I, I just, I, I have a personal conversation with the giver of, ideas, uh, the muse, whatever, inspiration. And I just had this deep sense at some point, I was like, you have to, I want you to start, start talking about this stuff. Start talking about these things that you've been gathering. So I, I started gathering together, put them in um, some kind of orderly form. And I was going to Nashville and my friend Nick LaPara runs a podcast called Let's Give a Damn. And so I was like, hey, could we do a live podcast in Nashville, invite some people. And I have some stuff I just think I need to talk about. And so he's like, because a podcast is great to just talk about these things instead of like having to perform and stuff. And so we did it and like 75 people came and I just shared the stuff. And then, uh, you know, people could have, I didn't, nobody stuck around to be like, oh great, finally my turn, you suck, thanks. And then left, you know, but like a, there was like 30 people stuck around to go, wow, that really hit me deep, like what you were mentioning. Like, I feel like I'm going through that. And then the next time I was, I was scheduled to speak at this arts conference in Idaho. And I was like, I'm going to take this unfinished, unpolished stuff and talk about it. So I added a few more slides and some stuff. And uh, artists were like, wow, this is, yeah, this is exactly the stuff I go through. And then after lunch, I found out that Anthony Bourdain killed himself. It was that day. And I look and like, I'm not trying to be a chef, but I think Anthony Bourdain 
represented for me and a lot of other friends who are makers, he represented what we'd like to have our lives turn into in some ways. Like we would like to think that we would be really good at something that we would unabashedly be ourselves, that that, uh, that, that talent and skill would lead us to fame, celebrity, wealth, travel, uh, you know, possibilities. And for him to go, I don't even want to be myself. <laughs> it just like, it's like took the legs out of what for me, I was like, well, what do you think your success is going to fill in you? If it didn't fill it in him, why do you think it's going to fill that lack in you? And it just like hit a paradigm that I didn't even really know I was partaking in and it crumbled. And I just remember in this parking lot in Idaho, I remember just going, I need to talk about suicide. Uh, I have some thoughts on it. Um, it's not the solution for everybody, but it's something to add to the conversation. I need to take this as far as I can. And um, so that's when I started going, how do I develop this stuff? Because Say Yes is about the spectrum of suicide. Like taking your own life is on that spectrum, but there's a lot of other ways that we give up on ourselves. And um, and I also like had, I've, I've I, like I, another uh, influence was going, I want to make something that's like a church service about suicide because I've never been to one. And what, if you made a church service about suicide, what would it be like? One, it can't be so boring that people want to kill themselves by the end of it. That would seem, uh, that would seem against what you're trying to accomplish. So, um, yeah, so that was, that was, so then I was like, well, I got to start bringing this stuff out. I got to develop it. And then there was a couple of things along the way that were really pivotal about how I developed um, Say Yes. One was my friend Greg. Um, he's been in a band his whole life. Um, and we were talking, cause I, have, I had like a kind of multimedia show before this called We Are Not Trouble Guests, which is about the um, gift of your existential crisis. And I was like, this is very different than that. It's not the same thing. And I was second guessing myself and he goes, you know, uh, when we'd be in the studio recording, we'd often get in our heads about, we have to make the best album ever. And he's like, so what we would do is we'd go, oh, well, this is the album before the best album ever. We just got to get through this album and then we'll get to making the best album ever. And he's like, by doing that, it takes all the pressure that you're putting on yourself about what this has to be. And he goes, so you can just take the pressure off of yourself. He's like, he's like, maybe he's like, you just need to finish this. And maybe it's something you do five times. Maybe it's something you do 500 times. You don't know, but just let it be. He's like, this is the show before the show. Just let it be what it needs to be. And just, and, and that was really helpful to just go, yeah, what does it just need to be? Stop trying to make it something it's not. And then uh, probably like six, five or six times I had done it. I was with my friend, Justin McRoberts, who I've made a couple books with, and we were driving in Chicago. And I was like, man, I feel like I should stop talking about this stuff and then just like fix it all in like by myself writing and then bring it back out. And he goes, no, no, I think you should do what comedians do. And I think you should just start, you should just keep working it out publicly. Like just figure it out with an audience. 
And so probably up until 20, 30 times, I used to have an introduction, which was like, this is not polished. This is not finished. And I think I got, I think it was like at 35 or something like that. I, I ended up changing the intro because I, because I got to a spot where I was like, no, I know everything I want to say now. So it allowed me to just go, this is a work in progress. If it's not perfect, well then, sorry, sorry to disappoint you. The, I, the joke I had was like, the gift I have to give to you is you're better than me. Is <laughs> that That's the gift I have to give to you. And so that's, that's kind of the genesis of this whole thing is like why I started putting this stuff down. Then I started talking about it. And then the motivator to go, oh, this needs to be discussed. And then how it was kind of developing that. the video that you do have of uh, say yes in uh, in the show notes for sure but having watched it i think what's powerful about it is yes the content which you know we'll talk about a little bit more uh, but i think it's the format too uh, you have audience participation central to the entire execution of the show uh, now it, you know is there a reason that that's crucial for this show specifically yeah um I had seen a play on HBO. <laughs> it's called Every Brilliant Thing. And it's a play about uh, whoever wrote it, their mom was suicidal. And he witnessed his mother attempt to take her life a few times. And then later on in his life, he attempted it. And so when he was a kid, this writer, he started listing like every brilliant thing to stay alive for. So he just started making a list of all the things to be alive for. And in that, I watched this like little expose on this, how they did it in this. It was like in New York, they adapted this like story and made it into a play. And the guy who did the play, when the people were coming in, he would have these like numbers to hand out. So he's like, Hey, when you have this, when this number is called, will you just stand up and say the thing? So the every brilliant thing, all the things that are written down are then said by the audience. And then even there was like a couple scenes where like he would make somebody in the audience his like, he was talking about getting engaged and he would make <laughs> that person their fiance. And then like find somebody who's the father-in-law. And there was like a scene where he's like, my father-in-law gave got up and stood and gave a great speech at our wedding. And he like makes the person do it on the spot. And the people, and I heard the guy who did the show was just like, people step up. They want to participate. And I was like, man, the next thing I do, I want to bring participation. And so I, I, um, I started going, well, sh what if I could ask these questions? How could I keep people anonymous? So they, they would ask, they would answer deeply, but then, but then we'd have these other voices besides myself. So um, I started going through the whole thing and going, what are some questions that could bring out people's stories about not so, so cause the show is not just my story. It's like, it's like, it weaves with my story, but it's also like, isn't this a shared experience that we all have? And so allowing people to do that, to share their experience, um, it, uh, it's revelatory for them. I remember the second time I did it in Idaho, um, somebody shared something. It was like, what's a secret we'd never know about you? And the woman was like, so I know it was a woman later, but she's like, I've cheated on my husband and he doesn't know. And uh, 
which in that context, which at this, which is at this like church, <laughs> I was like, wow, people share like really honest things, which is awesome because that was it's also like a function of uh, like confession, and which is relieving to us um, when we hear other people admit their faults or their fears and things like that. And I heard that from somebody who knew that woman, she said, when I heard somebody else say my story, I had so much grace for that story. When I hear myself say my own story, my own story, I have a lot of judgment. But when I heard somebody else say my situation, I, I found I had a lot of grace. Like that must be a really hard situation or something like that. It must be very complicated why that would be happening. And, and that, so that was like, wow, how do we keep fostering that? And so then it, so then it just kept evolving where I'd like rework the questions, I'd rework the answers. There's even like a scene where I talk about facing your fears. And I was, I was like, man, I always have this fear in public speaking that somebody in the audience will be, it's totally true. It always is. There's somebody smarter than me, probably more capable than me. And I'm always freaked out about doing stuff in front of them. So I decided to embody that and actually interact with that. So I, so a lot of people they, like, there's 24 questions that go out, but then I plant like four people in the audience. So I have this moment where I have, I prep the person, I find somebody who represents an older man who looks like a college professor and <laughs> I play, I, I talk with them before and I'm like, at this pot, I want you to stand up and interrupt me. Nobody's going to know that you're planted. And so people might think you're a real jerk, but at the end, when it's revealed, it's like the joke of the night. So just go with it. And they always own up. Like it's been amazing. Some people get really aggressive. Some people like improv and I'm just like, I will play along with you. I will, I will pretend you're just some guy in the audience interrupting me. And because uh, then everybody feels the tension and then there's the relief. And then it's like, okay, let's do that with our own fears. Like, and it's such a great moment. It's like my favorite moment ever. So it, it, it became, as I kept doing it, I was like, man, I mean, my content is good, but I was like, kind of the best thing of the night is giving the audience a chance to share and participate in the stuff that would come out of people. It, it was like it, it's, it keeps me engaged. Cause like I, we were talking earlier, it's like, I have the whole thing memorized. Like I could just do the whole thing right now for memory, but night after night, the real gold is like this audience that's gathered and what they're sharing. And then, and that becomes this, that's why it's called a liturgy of not giving up on ourselves. It's like, it's this participation. It's not just me. I'm asking everybody else to participate. Even like, finally, there's like a final yell. And I'm like, you have to do it, you know? And every, so everybody like has used their body to participate. And um, I think that's, what's really transformational. It's, it's, it's kind of in light of like, uh, even like a, a, a sacred, cause it, I want it to be like a sacred ceremony in a way. And uh, like some people need to, you know, I grew up in a faith tradition that was just like, stand up, sit down, say the things. There was responsive reading and stuff, but then some other traditions are like, get up and dance and do all these things. You know, it's like this embodied participation. I wanted to have some kind of embodied participation and, and it's, it pays off. It really does. Yeah, for sure. And you had mentioned earlier that, you know, obviously the show is about uh, dying, about suicide, but you mentioned that there's a spectrum of that. Uh, and, and within part one, uh, 
you dive into this idea of self-talk and, and some of the narratives that we have for ourselves, one of which is nothing's going to change. Uh, this is always the way things are going to be. And what, what stood out to me, and I'd love if you could dive into it a little bit, uh, is that when we feel that way, that nothing's ever going to change, our immediate response is that we might not have enough information for a solution. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. The, so I found this because of my own dance with depression, is that the times I get really depressed is when I think nothing can change. Every, it's going to be this miserable day every day for the rest of your life. Um, which uh, Johan Hari's book, Lost Connection, uh, he identifies nine causes of depression. It's a brilliant book. And one of them is a loss of a hopeful future. So just thinking like things can change, things can be different um, is like, if you think nothing can be different, it's, it'll lead to this kind of shutting down, this like giving up. And so um, that, and that is really just a narrative that you're having about yourself. It's just like, nothing's going to change. When, actu when in actuality, all around you, things are changing all the time. Like your cellular structure completely changes every seven years. You know, your skin changes like every 21 days. There's just like all these like, you know, things are happening. Things are always changing, but your perception of like what they're going to change is really what's influencing it. And so what's happening in that is we have this narrative that's saying nothing's going to change. And I, uh, and people are like, so you got to change your narratives. You got to change your narratives. That's like a common self-help talk. And that's true, but it's really hard to counteract a narrative um, when you haven't experienced another one. So what I offer is my own experience with wonder. And I submit that wonder is when you step out of a narrative, when you actually have no narrative and you're just present with now. And wonder is, is this uh, transformational experience. You don't have to, like, because I think a lot of um, what we think we need to do, at least for me, is like, oh, I have this narrative. I got to write down another narrative and say it over and over and over again. But I don't necessarily know that that's true in my body you know? And, and I feel like my experiences with wonder was like, I, I was moving from a knowing with my head to a knowing with my essence of being. And that knowing of essence of being is way stronger than the knowing of your like reasonable mind. And so I offer a spiritual mental health practice, which is like, how can you, how can you engage in wonder every day? And the question I come up with is, what don't I know? What don't I know about what's happening right now? Because what builds narratives is assumptions. Assumptions are what are building all these narratives around us. And so if you can start addressing the assumptions, you can, just, you can take apart the narrative. And so like it takes a bit of imagination. It takes a bit of like, uh, you know, paying attention, but uh, just by simply like when you find yourself like bored going, nothing's going to change. You just go, well, what don't I know about now? Like could, like my wife and I have a mantra, which is, and we, we said this a lot when we were a lot poorer than we are now, but we would be like an email and a phone call could change everything. And that could happen like in five minutes, it could happen in five days, but everything could be different by just a simple phone call or email. And then all of this worry and all of this anxiety would seem dumb in that perspective. So why not infer 
which takes it a level deeper, which is like, do you think the universe is out to get you? Do you think the universe is here to co-create with you? I mean, it brings us to a deeper level of what we think our lives are and what we think our existence is. And so that, that is where like this kind of narrative self-talk, I was like, I, for me, I was like, I don't need just other narratives to tell myself. I need to step out of narratives altogether and just enjoy being here and go, wow, there's this, uh, there's this, just being alive is amazing, you know? Because the narratives, uh, the narratives that are destructive say being alive sucks and is awful and I want to kick out or I want to, I want to, um, protect myself from the pain of being alive. And that's really what's going through say yes. It's not just giving up on yourself. It's really addressing like, I guess the spiritual level is to go, hey, if life is a miracle, then how do we get to a spot in our lives where we go, thank you, the giver of this miraculous life. I don't want it anymore. <laughs> I don't want your miracle. And that's like the deeper conversation to giving up that I, I'm trying to like get to and say yes. Yeah. And and a little bit connected to that, you know, you, you sort of dive deeper into that, that ultimate wanting to check out. Uh, but what's interesting, and, and probably one of the most profound things that jumped out to me in watching it is that for some religious spheres, we sort of have ingrained in our minds the, uh, the return of Jesus. And uh, man, one of, one of the things that jumped out at me, and I, I've been wrestling with it ever since I heard you say it, is that if I don't think I'm going to die, I never truly live. Yep. And it's connected to, you know, if Jesus is coming back, you know, we sort of, I, <laughs> I laugh about it because you say, well, Jesus is coming back in 3016. Don't ask me why I know. <laughs> don't ask me how I know. I just know. Yep. Uh, what, what is it, you know, how? how is that mindset connected to, to suicide in, in like this almost trying to numb the pain of our own mortality? Yeah. I, I think I, uh, and it's highly uh, appropriate for the dismantle podcast. I think when my, like I started dismantling my spiritual life in my thirties, because what I found is that a lot of the practices that I had, they just stopped working. They just, you know, like I had experiences and new information that made these old paradigms not work anymore. And what I started, and like I've had a number of friends die at young ages. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of hubris in spirituality that doesn't, hasn't really, because we're, because of the Western sanitized society we live in, uh, like old age and sickness have been removed from us. They happen in closed doors. I remember being at, when I went to Bible school, uh, I, one of my classmates, she was American, but she grew up in Kenya. And uh, I was like, so what was the difference? What, what were some of the differences of growing up in Kenya versus like living in the United States? In the first, she goes, hmm. The first thing she said, she goes, oh, the amount of death you see. I was like, what? And she goes, in the US, you just don't see death at all. Like it's all like somebody dies, they you know put them in a bag, put them in a car, take them, and then the next time you see them, they have makeup on. She's like, in Kenya, like when grandma died, they would take her body and bring it outside the house. The community would gather around as they're waiting to take her to bury her. And like people would come and touch this dead body. She's like, you just saw dead bodies. If like if somebody lost their baby, it wasn't like in a hospital. It was like right there. And so she's like, death was just like a part of life. And 
I started really going, man, a lot of my faith upbringing was about afterlife. It had lots to say about afterlife and it put a lot of um, faith in this kind of made up afterlife. But I think like from my own experience of having friends died, and this might make me a bad Christian, which I don't care. But like, I was like, actually, there's really no evidence to anything after this at all. It really is just faith and a hope. But if you're honest and if you could build any kind of like argument about afterlife, there's mysterious snippets and things and longings, but there's no evidence. It's so, (laughs) so I was like, is this whole thing about deferred life? And does Jesus and does your Christian tradition say anything about this life? And it turns out it's all about this life. So it, and what, what helped me was like Franciscan uh, spiritual practices, Father Richard Rohr, I read his book on Franciscan spiritual practices, but I heard him say, he goes, uh, the Franciscan spiritual practices are built on this premise, which is uh, the spiritual world is much, the, the, the physical world is the doorway to the spiritual world. And the f- spiritual world is much, much larger. So what that means is there is like, there, yes, there is a much larger reality than what we see, but we can't access that reality except through this reality. And that confronted this whole way of thinking about everything that I grew up with, which was just like, can't wait to get that larger reality. And then like this reality sucks and is, we should just burn it all and just destroy it and put it on, you know, it becomes all this very destructive way of living versus like, hey, like this is the world that God has given us to tend and care for. This is the doorway to knowing God. These relationships and people, these are the doorway to knowing the divine. And they all became, and then the world became a doorway to something larger. And that made so much more sense from an experiential level to a scriptural level to just like a living level. And so, um, yeah. So that specific last scene is is really pushing back on all my end times training that I had growing up. And I know it's really specific, but there are a lot of people who have had similar experiences. And I'm, cause I actually think it's like the, what that training did is it made us awful human beings. And it's, I think it's very destructive. I've met people who are like my parents, like have a bombshell with all their stuff. You know, they spent their whole savings on saving up for this, like Jesus coming back. And, and so, because it's interesting that the people who, uh, this is what I'm pushing on. The joke is, is that the people who uh, predict Jesus is going to come back is always like five years away to next week. You know, it's never like we figured it out. It's a thousand years from now, <laughs> you know, because then you wouldn't give a shit because you're like, well, I'm going to die anyways. And it's like, exactly. Why, so why you're, you're deferring the truth that you're going to die. Everyone dies. And, uh, and that's where I'm trying to like get to, which is just like (laughs) in a kind and fun way, but going, you're going to die and that's okay. Everybody does. Um, and then I get into Bronnie wears five regrets of the dying. And I go like, we don't know what's after this, but we know what's right before. And it's regret. And maybe that wisdom of, almost dying can help us live a life that we know we want to live 
and that. And so that, and the, I mean, <laughs> there's so much here. I mean, it's all in the show. My, my spiritual director taught me this death practice, which I creatively do at the end. Um, and that death practice, which is pretending you're going to die, imagining you're going to die and giving away everything you have, giving away your whole life helps you reorient to like what's most important in your life and how do you want to live and what do you want to go for? And um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of, it's working on a lot of different levels at the same time. And, and within that, that moment, I think you, you sort of, you phrase it as though it's a conversation with our eventual disappearance. Yeah. What exactly does that look like? Um, well, that's a line st stolen, taken, borrowed um, from the poet David White, who's amazing. Um, and yeah, a conversation with your eventual disappearance, which is, I mean, I think if you've lost friends, family, loved ones, their memory is with you. You can hear their voice, but they're, they're, um, you don't see them anymore. Their presence is gone. Um, they've, they were, and even like, if you've had the chance to see like somebody who's in a body and then they're no longer in their body, but their body's left there. It's so odd experience of being like, how were they just there? But now they're not here, but their body's still here. There's this other part of us that's untouchable and hard and, and mysterious. We still haven't figured it out, not even close, but it's like, that's the part of us that comes and goes from somewhere to something, if anything at all. But where does that go? Where does that come out? So you're like, there's this disappearance of that. And you, that will happen to you too. That part of you will disappear from this physical part of you. And it'll disappear from view from everybody that you know or has known you. And that's going to happen whether you want it to or not. It's something you're not in control of. And that can be very frightening and unsettling that you don't have that control because then it leads us to go, well, whatever's taking me or wherever I go next, is it benevolent? Is it good? And that is a whole other conversation. <laughs> but before that leaving, that disappearing happens, what will have you have thought about your life? And what will if you have wished you had done? And Bronnie Ware, this hospice care nurse, she's like, people say the same things at the end of their life. They say the same regrets. And uh, I was fascinated by that because I was like, well, if that's what we say, why, like, why are we arguing about the 10 commandments written on walls? We should put up these regrets of the dying because that seems like the wisdom that's going to orient us to go, what a good life was, was like this and this and this. And, and she's like saying like, no, there's a commonality. People say the same things. So I wanted to take that and make that a rubric for like helping me orient myself to what matters most in my life. Like one of them is like, I wish I hadn't worked so hard, which as a guy, I find a lot of my identity in working and accomplishing and so to go, hey, I very well, like many other people will go, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. How can I apply that now? Still with my ambitions, still wanting to do things, but also as a dad and things like that. Like I, I went to this um, therapist for a little bit and my first intake with her was like an hour and a half of, convert, of like questions. And her question that floored me was just like, what are your hobbies? 
<laughs> and I, I just, it stopped me dead. I was like, hobbies? And she's like, yeah, hobbies. What are your hobbies? I was like, you mean besides taking care of children and working? I don't have any hobbies. And it wasn't about just like, I should take up model training. You know, it was what she was saying, what a hobby is, is like, what's something you in, what, what's something you do to just enjoy living? That's what a hobby is. Do you do something that's just the enjoyment of being alive? And I had gotten to a spot in my life where I didn't. Everything had a goal. Everything was something to accomplish. It just, it, I missed, I just stopped enjoying life. And one of the things, I think number five is people are like, I wish I hadn't worried so much about my life. That was like the fifth out of one to five regrets. People are like, I wish I would have just enjoyed being alive because now I'm going to not be alive and I wish I would have enjoyed it more. And that is really confronting to me. So it's trying to build in like, what do you do to enjoy living? Which is sort of a great segue, <laughs> um, you know, of all the hats that you wear, uh, author is, is also one of them. And you got a new book coming out called Honest Advent, uh, which seems strange to sort of end a, a discussion about suicide, <laughs> but, but can you share a little bit about the book and, and some of the themes going on within it? Yeah. Well, again, as a creator, I had this experience four years ago where we found ourselves, we found ourselves in a very similar space that we do now. Like it was after an exhausting and divisive election. We were seeing all these images from Syria and just destruction and displacement and immigrants. Uh, we had mass, multiple mass shootings, Zika virus, Flint water cross crisis, just a lot of like really hard, difficult things. And then in November after the election, I think I went to like Target or CVS or something. And I just, you know, all of a sudden the blanket of Christmas decorations had dusted everything in Western society and was like, oh yeah, Christmas. And I love Christmas. I really do. I'm a big fan of Christmas, but I, I, I like the music and the lights and all the things. But I was just like, man, this feels really meaningless to the world I live in right now. And um, because it felt like sanitized and safe, it felt, it felt like it was pageantry instead of participation. It felt like it was just like, just some kind of um, fairy tale versus something that really was happening in our world. And uh, I have, I, I say in the book, I'm like, I'm not a woman, but I'm married to one. <laughs> I live with one. And I've witnessed three pregnancies and three births up close and they're nothing is sanitized or safe about them. They're very risky. They're very painful. They're very vulnerable. There's a transformation that takes place in you that you're not in charge of. And they have a lot of bodily fluids involved. And I started seeing that, um, that God participated, uh, like God incarnated into our world by participating in human vulnerability. So maybe the place that we could encounter God still is in human vulnerability. And that's where my meditation went to. And so I started looking at all the very vulnerable places of that this Advent story, this incarnation story did, which is like with parenthood and birth and social norms and politics and all of these things. And I viewed it from like God participating in human vulnerability. Cause what I wanted to know was like, is Jesus still in our midst? Um, 
is I say is the is the Christmas story a, a memorial service or is it a birthday party? And if you ask any kid at church, they're like, it's Jesus's birthday. And it's like, great. Well, where is he? Because a memorial service is something that happened one time. A birthday party means it's still going on. And I was like, where, where do we connect with Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's the birthday boy? Is Jesus still in our midst? Where? And I started to meditate and contemplate and interact and participate with that Jesus is found in our vulnerabilities. That Jesus is, that God is actually with us through all of our human vulnerabilities. So I made a series of images and meditations that, that consider that and invite people to that. Again, getting to try to rekindle the wonder, which is, because I think there's a lot of assumptions of Christmas because we've all grown up with it, that we've kind of lost the wonder. And so I was trying to sidestep all of those narratives to go, what don't I know about the story? What don't I know? What do I think I know, but what don't I really know about what's happening here? And that's, and that's what the book is about. Well, uh, I've so enjoyed our conversation, man. Thank you so much for making the time. But, you know, as we bring it to a close, along these these subjects, these difficult subjects that we've been discussing and, and sort of bring us to a vulnerable spot, uh, you know, how do you think the church maybe takes a baby step in some of these, these, uh, these difficult conversations uh, so that we can all move forward together? On Advent or like on suicide or give, <laughs> giving up? Is that? Let's say yes. Whichever one you want to go for. <laughs> I think with Advent, I think it's, uh, I'm asking churches to go, let's consider vulnerability as our way to connect with God instead of this, like, cause often like church really likes to be in bed with power. Um, and so it's always like, we got the right story. We're the best religion. This we're victorious, which is fine. But it, it's always like, it likes to, it just likes to wrap the mantle of power over itself. And yet Paul um, in writing to the Philippians goes like, uh, Jesus wrapped himself in weakness. And, uh, and that's why he's called Lord of Lords. So <laughs> we already know that we're wrapped in weakness. So maybe we should stop trying to wrap ourselves in power and just go, oh, because I'm wrapped in weakness means I'm already accessing what Jesus was doing. So I think that's my invitation to church leaders. And then with like suicide and mental health, suicide's very confronting to religion because religion, most, especially religion that wants power, mostly works on the premise that God is like a product, that if you get God, you get Jesus, your life will be better. And that always falls apart in the midst of tragedy and I think uh, the ways that churches and, and spiritual communities can be helpful is to really like, uh, first of all, like consider that spiritual practices are mental health practices and to really listen to people who are mental health practitioners and those things instead of like band-aiding it with like a Bible verse, but going, this is actually like an embodied experience. Um, how can we be an embodied help with these people's embodied experiences instead of just going, just get Jesus in, you'll feel better. It's like, that's because I, I say, and I don't say this and say, yes, I said it in uh, something else where I was like, look, I have Jesus in my heart, but that didn't make me not want my heart to stop. <laughs> like Jesus isn't the product that makes me want to stay alive. Um, 
I think, well, Jesus is not a product at all. That's it. So um, Jesus is a person I can know. Is Jesus is an essence I can know and participate with and and then discover the gift of life, life to the full. I mean, I think that's what he's saying. It's like, I came to bring life to the full. So not as a product, but as a participation. Excellent thoughts, man. Thank you. And uh, again, thanks for being a guest on the show. Where can people find you online and connect with the new book? Uh, I am Scott the Painter in all social medias. Uh, Scott Erickson Art is my website. And then the book is Honest Advent and honestadvent.com or Instagram Honest Advent. Uh, both are places you can connect with it. Awesome. We'll make sure we uh, throw it all in the show notes. But again, man, thank you so much. Thanks. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thanks so much for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram at dismantlepod or shoot us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. Mm-hmm.